Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Nonprofit workers know it feels good to make a difference in your community, helping people, especially those who are underserved. Yet attracting workers to take on, quote, noble work for less pay doesn't cut it anymore. In a survey by the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance, nine out of 10 nonprofits say it's difficult to recruit new workers. And the stakes are even higher because demand for services, services to help the most vulnerable, have only increased over the last two years. Today, where we live, we talk to local nonprofits about how they're working to fill vacancies and retain staff when burnout is high and there's better pay in the private sector. Do you work for a nonprofit? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up later, Beth Cantor, the co-author of The Happy Healthy Nonprofit, joins us. First on Zoom is Brunelda Ferrai, Vice President of Programs and Operations at the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance. Brunelda, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me. Good morning. I cited, I cited that stat from the Alliance's survey, 9 out of 10 nonprofits in Connecticut having trouble recruiting new workers. So tell us about um, the nonprofit world here in our state and what you're hearing from your members. Sure. So we at the Alliance knew anecdotally by talking to nonprofits day to day that staff burnout and the workforce crisis is the worst that it's ever been. We decided to look into this further through a survey that we did to really understand and quantify the scope of the problem here in Connecticut. And what we found was that 91% of nonprofits, almost all of them that we surveyed, said that it's been extremely difficult or difficult to recruit employees this past year compared to other years. And across the sector, nonprofits are experiencing an average vacancy rate right now of 18%. So that's almost one in five positions that are vacant right now. And that's just the average. We're hearing of a lot higher rates in some sectors. Um, And they're having difficulty hiring at all staff levels, from psychiatrists and APRNs to residential staff. Um, And for the staff that do remain in the workforce, What we're hearing is that they're stretched to the max and they're experiencing burnout due to the weight of additional responsibilities that they've had to take on because some of their colleagues are vacating the sector. And there's especially a serious shortage right now among clinicians, doctors, APRNs, social workers. And these are all jobs that have to be filled by someone with specialized training and education. Um, So for example, one nonprofit for a single nonprofit, one clinician vacancy can make the difference between being able to serve 200 additional people a year to get mm-hmm. clinical mental health services. And Brunelda, you mentioned that that vacancy rate. What did it look like before the pandemic? Um, before the pandemic, 
nonprofits were always, so nonprofits have always sort of struggled to recruit and retain staff because of competition with other sectors like um, state services, as one example, who can provide better pay and um, increased benefits. But the difference right now is that even the big box stores, um, community nonprofits are now in competition with employers like Amazon and Walmart, and they don't require any specialized training and they're paying more and offering more hiring incentives. And so they're not just competing with the state for uh, staff right now. They're also competing with um, organizations like Target, for example, who just announced that they're going to raise their starting wage for some workers up to $24 an hour. And I'm not, you know, they're not in any way discounting that important work, but nonprofits have been working through the pandemic. They've been providing these essential services to people in need of life-saving care and they are burnt out and they're leaving the sector um, now that there's new available well-paying jobs in other industries that are less stressful. So when you hear uh, from these uh, local nonprofits that are struggling, you mentioned uh, they, these uh, you know, people that traditionally were working uh, can get better pay at, say, a Target or working for Amazon. You know, what does that do to the services that these nonprofits uh, provide? Um, from thinking about the caseloads and the demand. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when nonprofit staff leave, it creates a sort of ripple effect that can lead to higher rates of burnout for the staff that remain in the nonprofit community. And because of that, those staff are seeing higher caseloads. They are working longer hours or overtime to make up for shortages in other areas of the organization. Um, so we're hearing about managers doing administrative or direct care work to cover shifts on top of doing their own work. Um, and this is happening at a time when demand for services is increasing. Um, for example, for mental health and substance use services, for services for people with disabilities. Um, so not only is there less staff to serve people, but there's more people that need to be served. And nonprofits are mission-driven, and quality of care is really important to them, um, and especially in this line of work. And so they're doing the best they can to mitigate negative consequences that the workforce crisis is having on service delivery. Um, But what's happening right now is that uh, the unprecedented, unprecedented staffing shortages are, you know, really causing a backlog in service delivery. So what we're seeing is that there's um, people out there waiting on waiting lists to get services. Um, as some examples, you know, there's people are waiting two weeks to get outpatient substance use services, three to 16 weeks to get outpatient mental health treatment, or a year to get into a day program. Um, and as for staff turnover due to like burnout, it does ultimately impact people that are seeking services. Like if you are a, if you're in a relationship with a clinician that supports you and that person turns over two or three times in a year and you need to start over with a new clinician, rehash your trauma and your background, yeah, that, that will have a negative impact on you. You're hearing Brunelda Ferrai here on Where We Live, Vice President of Programs and Operations at the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance. 
as we talk about burnout and the uh, reliance on services uh, increasing during the pandemic. But what does that mean for local nonprofits providing these important programs and services in local communities? Uh, we're hearing Brunelda uh, lay out that demand is high, burnout is high, and for many people who work in nonprofits, they, you know, they want to help uh, the underserved, and when they're not able to, that also can impact morale. If you're working in a nonprofit, we'd love to hear from you about what you're experiencing. Eight 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 seven two zero that's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So when we think about the role that nonprofits play in our state, Brunelda, when we think about the relationship these nonprofits have contractually with the state of Connecticut so that you're providing these services um, to at the local level, uh, maybe explain to our listeners, you know, when we think about the salary offered to nonprofits, why it's not that simple to just raise wages. Right. So that I, I think that's a really important part to starting to address this issue right now in the nonprofit community. And while there may be some ancillary solutions out there to address the root cause of the problem that we're talking about, nonprofits need to be adequately funded um, so that they can support their employees. And while some for-profit businesses, like I mentioned earlier, have been able to find ways to raise wages, nonprofits don't really have that option. They contract with the state to provide services on behalf of the state, but state funding has not kept up with the costs over the last decade and a half. So nonprofits don't have the ability to increase their staff salaries, benefits, or offer any other type of relief right now, unless the state pays them to do that. So human health and human service nonprofits specifically are almost exclusively funded by the state. They don't set their own prices. And unfortunately, the prices that the state has set for them that is paying them to deliver these services is inadequate. They're at the total and complete mercy of the state. So at the Alliance, we are calling on policymakers to increase funding to nonprofits to prevent burnout and increase retention rate among current staff. Um, and so nonprofits have the ability to and resources to fill those vacancies. And as just to provide some background into that, um, at the beginning of last year, nonprofits were $461 million behind inflation since 2007. So for the past decade, each state budget has either flat funded or at best, like flat funded at best or deeply cut community services. And the last time that nonprofits received a significant increase in um, rates was just last year which we are completely grateful for. It was about a 4% increase, but compared to that historic decades long underfunding, it's a drop in the bucket. And if you look at inflation since that increase went into effect, it's increased by 5.9%. So that's already been eaten up. You can join us again, 888-720-9677, as we talk about uh, what nonprofits are facing, uh, not only in our state, but nationwide. Uh, Kathy tweeted at us, Brunelda, nonprofits, including nonprofit legal service organizations like Connecticut Legal Rights Project, have been asked to do more with less for years. She writes, how many law students with six figures of debt can realistically afford to work for us? even as we try to help with loan repayment. And that also gets uh, to the heart of, you know, people that may want to work at a nonprofit, they believe in their mission, but they've also got bills to pay, Brunelda. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. Yes, I I completely agree with Kathy. Um, and I think, you know, it, looking at solutions right now, now is the time to address that problem. I mean, I don't I don't claim to be a state budget expert by any means. There are others on our staff that can do that, but it doesn't really take one to understand that the state has the funding right now to address that crisis um, and fund and provide resources to nonprofit staff leaving the workforce so that they can stay. Um, for this year, just for example, the state is projecting a $2 billion surplus. Our rainy day fund in the state is full. And for the next fiscal year, 23, the state's projecting a $1.9 billion surplus. And this is unprecedented. Like now is the time to provide relief and support to nonprofit and their staff who've been working tirelessly to provide services through the pandemic. Um, we're consistently hearing that nonprofit staff are hanging on by their fingernails. Their stagnant pay right now just can't compete with fields that are paying much higher rates. And these are staff that have, been that have been working through the COVID pandemic. And so while burnout may have been high before the pandemic, the pandemic has just accelerated burnout for staff. And while people in other sectors may have been able to sort of work from home, nonprofit staff didn't really have that choice for the most part. Every day for nearly two years, they've continued to come to work and, some and serve some of Connecticut's most needy people that need these community services. Tom uh, from New Haven wanted to share uh, this comment. I wanted to ask, you know, looking at staff pay relative to top CEO pay in each nonprofit organization, Tom writes, in some nonprofits, not all, maybe we need to spread the money downward. How do you respond to that, Brunelda? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question. I think instead of like, so like I said before, um, there is not a limited pool of funding right now in which we would need to reallocate anything. The state has $2 billion in their coffers. Um, I think that nonprofit staff, every staff, every clinician needs to be brought up. Um, and I sort of question whether reallocating top level pay is enough, right? Even if we did that, it would not be enough to bring clinicians up to $24 an hour so that they compete with Target. Mm. Uh, Brunelda, when we think about all of the stressors on nonprofits, as you've laid out, and how uh, the financial support from the state is critical, uh, when we also look at the membership that you have, you know, during the pandemic, or even, you know, now that we look like we're, you know, getting closer to the end of this, you know, how many nonprofits have had to close because of uh, not having enough staff to do the work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there have been a handful of nonprofits that have closed their doors completely because of the pandemic. Unfortunately, it is the smaller nonprofits, the community nonprofits that are really ingrained in their communities that are suffering and in, in making those kinds of decisions right now. And in addition, like I said before, nonprofits are mission driven. They're first and foremost, they are dedicated to the people that they're serving in their communities. And so they are running as lean as possible right now. Um, when it comes to delivering services, they are cutting back on every single aspect of their organization so that they can continue to serve the people that need mental health, substance abuse services, that have developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities. And so um, I think what we're seeing is that we are at that we are at the breaking point. 
And so unless legislators and the administration work together to address this crisis, we're going to see a lot more programs that are going to be put on the chopping block. And we're going to see waiting lists for services continue to grow. I mean, a year just to get into a day program is extraordinary. Why are people in Connecticut waiting that long to get services right now? You know, while you're waiting to see if policymakers respond uh, to what you and so many nonprofits need, what are some solutions uh, that these local organizations are tackling now to help with burnout? Because the work still mm-hmm. needs to continue. Yeah, that's 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 right. It does. And um, like we mentioned earlier, um, the need for community services continues to go up. And so when we surveyed our membership, the nonprofits, we asked them what they're doing to try to prevent burnout or try to alleviate some of these issues. And while some have been able to um, make adjustments and increase pay for staff here by a few dollars or um, shift some things around within their organizations, ultimately it comes back to the state is funding these nonprofits. The state is paying for these services. And unless the state um, is able to increase those rates, then the organizations themselves cannot pass it down to their staff. Um, Like I said, that is the root cause of the problem. At the Alliance, we're working on some other additional um, solutions to help alleviate um, the issue right now, like advocating for tuition reimbursement and loan forgiveness for staff who choose to spend their careers employed by community nonprofits or working to reduce or eliminate tuition for community nonprofit staff. Um, at institutions for higher education. But ultimately, it all comes down to the funding streams. And when you follow that back, it, it's, it's really um, important that legislators address and work with the administration to address this issue this year. You're hearing Brunelda Farah here on Where We Live, Vice President of Programs and Operations at the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from a Bloomfield-based nonprofit with 90 vacancies. So how is Community Solutions, Inc. able to continue providing services to local residents? We'll hear right after our break, and we'll take your questions and comments, too. If you work for a nonprofit, we'd love to hear how you're doing. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Before the pandemic, nonprofits in Connecticut say it was a challenge to deliver services and needed programs to local communities because these community groups have been underfunded by the state for some time. And over the last two years, demand for services have only increased, leading to heavier caseloads and worker burnout. What are you experiencing at your nonprofit? We want to hear from you, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Nine out of 10 Connecticut nonprofits are struggling to fill vacancies. We're talking about why and what can be done with my guest, Brunelda Ferrai, Vice President of Programs and Operations at the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance. Uh, for another perspective, joining us now on Zoom is Sherry Albert, who's the Chief Operating Officer with Community Solutions, Inc., based in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Sherry, welcome to our show. 
Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So briefly, what kinds of services does your organization provide and how many staff do you have? We have about 450 employees and uh, we provide services uh, in the criminal justice and child welfare arenas. Um, So in the state of Connecticut, we're working with departments of correction, judicial branch court support services division and department of children and families. And when you say you're working with these populations, can you give us an example of some of the services that you're providing? Sure. We offer residential services, so halfway houses, for example, that the Department of Corrections uses. Um, We also serve the Federal Bureau of Prisons, too. We have out-client programs, which are called Alternatives in the Community, that provide a variety of cognitive-based and evidence-based curricula. And we have uh, homes where um, young people from Department of Children and Families who uh, are not able to live at home uh, are able to live in a couple of home-like environments um, here in Connecticut um, where they essentially are learning to live on their own so that ultimately they can move into their own uh, apartments and um, be good citizens as we all want to be. When um, we are hearing from Brunelda about nine out of 10 uh, nonprofits, uh, you know, have vacancies, having trouble finding new workers. So what is Community Solutions experiencing, Sherry? We are experiencing incredible uh, vacancies. I've worked in this industry for 36 years. This is certainly the worst I've ever seen by far. Um, About 20 years ago, the average vacancy for us. And at that time, we probably had only about 300 employees. The average number of vacancies was nine, Um, probably somewhere around 2009. um, The average vacancies were around 37. And over the past couple of years, our vacancies have remained between 85 and 92 vacancies every single week. Mm. And when we think about how much you're able to offer your workers to even retain them or to, to try to fill these 90 vacancies, you know, how much are you able to offer and how does that compare to what the private sector offers, Sherry? Well, we, we certainly are not anywhere near what the private sector is most often. Um, so we're, we're offering typically 15, 75 an hour about there. Um, for our frontline workers, which are the majority of our staff. Um, If we have a case management job, for example, typically the state pays double what we're able to pay. Um, But as it was mentioned earlier with with Target or Amazon, um, Subway, Starbucks, they, they all offer more. And what's so difficult is, is that while those are all um, you know, wonderful services in our Connecticut, in Connecticut, the reality is, is that, you know, we're often dealing with clients that have extreme traumatic histories that have mental health conditions that have substance use, uh, conditions. Um, and therefore, you know, the skill level necessary to serve those clients well, 
um, is much greater. And to think that the pay is actually less um, for someone who works in a halfway house, for example, um, is just unconscionable. And we're dealing with this every day. Um, we lose staff. We used to lose staff more to the state, as Bernilda mentioned. But frankly, now we are losing staff to Target and to Walmart. Um, I lost a program director who went to work for Planet Fitness because while it wasn't much more money, it was a little more money, but it was a lot less stress. Um, and I have example after example of people who've left our agency um, to go to other types of work that perhaps are not as fulfilling to them, but that they need to take in order to survive and in order to be able to pay their rent or their mortgage. Most of our employees have two jobs as a result. That's Cherry Albert, Chief Operating Officer with Community Solutions, Inc., based in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Uh, Chris is calling in from, I believe, South Wyndham, and Chris uh, works or leads a nonprofit, I believe. Chris, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. And what did you want to share? Well, I totally echo what Cherry says. There's no uh, comparison to the skill set that our professional staff uh, have to have, uh, and the, the wages don't don't really um, measure up, and we are also losing staff to places that they would rather not work. And the important thing to remember, as has been also said, is the state has record surpluses this year, and and it's it's really because of the revenue that are coming in. And when you can, when you add everything together, it's it's over five billion dollars, and that's a billion five billion dollars. This is the time to make these funding changes that will enable the nonprofit community to continue um, and meet the needs of Connecticut citizens. We are, we are reducing services. We're cutting back services um, because we don't have the staff. We're losing nurses. Uh, we're losing direct care professionals. And if we don't have the staff, we can't provide the services. We're the safety net for Connecticut's citizens. And we want to be there to support people that need our services, but we can't do it for free. We need the funding. And last year's increase, while it was very welcome and we're very um, appreciative of it, it in no way made a living wage uh, uh, a reality for the direct care professionals that have been in our field for five and six years that finally got up to the level of some of these starting salaries. And now they are, they are at par with those folks that just come into the, to the field. Well, thank you, Chris, uh, for sharing your perspective on this. Uh, Sherry, I wanted to go back to you because when you're, you have these vacancies and you're losing people, uh, the institutional knowledge who are good at their job, but they've got to you know, think about their families and the bills that they have to pay and they're looking for better pay. Does that mean you're now bringing on people who have less experience and how is that impacting the services you provide? Yes, it is true. We're, we're bringing on people with, with far less uh, experience. And so the investment that we have to make in terms of training also is larger than normal. And that is exacerbating the situation because you're trying to train up uh, so many people. Um, and with the turnover, it's you're in constant training mode. That never goes away. Um, so many uh, managers and supervisors are literally having to fill shifts themselves and do side-by-side -side training with their employees 
as things unfold, just to be able to hold the program together. It's, it's a significant draw on our people and it's very taxing as well. Certainly, um, you know, what happens is, is a lot of times this, this, this staff have to, you know, go to a manager to check out and say, okay, is this the proper policy or that the proper policy? So it just sort of makes things take longer for our clients. Um, and our clients have been, you know, really amazing and, and very patient because they even know that it's a crisis and that they're, that they're just too much to learn (laughs) too quickly. So, um, but I am in awe of our staff. I'll tell you that Um, I'm in awe of them because everybody is trying their best to make sure that our clients are still served during this crisis. I wanted to bring in a caller. We've been talking about the people who love nonprofit work, but who have had to leave uh, because of their situations. Uh, Sarah Talkett joins us now. She's a marketing consultant from Vernon, Connecticut. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what were you doing in the nonprofit world? And, And tell us some of the reasons why you had to leave. Sure. Um, uh, over the last 15 years, I actually have worked for a number of nonprofits ranging from um, medical research in Boston um, to food education. And then I went to the startup food world for a while. And then I also came back um, to nonprofit and was working for a foundation in Western Massachusetts um, when COVID started. And I had been there for about uh, two years when that started. And so when you looked at your family situation and also salary, you know, talk about those factors and leading you to to make a a decision to leave the nonprofit world. Yeah, sure. So I um, really, it was um, when I started working in nonprofit um, again, after having been in the startup world, and I'd like to just make a point that those two worlds are pretty similar because you really have a lack of resources um, between, you know, startup and nonprofit. Um, when I stepped back into the uh, the uh, nonprofit world, um, the salary was certainly nowhere near what I had been earning in a startup, which was also a surprise to me, especially um, at a foundation. Um, but the uh, the real issues with working in a nonprofit that I saw was um, just an incredible amount of overwork and underpay. Um, and you know, at a foundation level, you have you know we're a community leader, and you're trying to help not um, raise funding for the area. And working directly with lots of um, boots on the ground nonprofits, and my time in that space, I remember just thinking that the people who were, I was working with shoulder to shoulder every day were working so hard, and they were such excellent, you know, cream of the crop t- people in their field. And the compensation simply wasn't matching what they were making, and it was an issue that was not allowed to be discussed. Um, and the other thing was that you hear about perks, all these perks working in nonprofit. And I really didn't see that. The perks, the benefits, everything lined up pretty much with private sector. So I'm not sure where along the way um, the perks are supposed to make up the difference. Um, but ultimately, because of COVID, I'm a single mom. Um, I had two kids. I did not have childcare, obviously, when COVID started. So I had to drop to half time and able to watch my three-year-old and seven-year-old um, and um, cut my salary to half time. And uh, there really was no accommodation or flexibility for me to try to make up the hours or work full time. So ultimately, I had to leave and start consulting so that I could be flexible and keep my own hours. 
Um, and that was certainly a disappointment, not having um, flexibility or any accommodation for someone with family needs. And it's surprising, too, being in the nonprofit world. Right. And so if you'd gotten that flexibility from your employer, would that have meant that you would have stayed, Sarah? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I was, I loved the work I did. I loved the team. Um, I had worked really hard to build a department uh, for a couple of years there. I was looking forward to reaping, you know, the fruits of that hard work. Um, and I also walked away from health insurance and um, retirement. So for the last two years, because of COVID and young kids and being a single mom, um, I have had to just be freelancing. Um, so, yeah, I definitely walked away from a really great job and situation, but I really had no choice because I did not have that accommodation. Uh, Brunelda Farai is still with us again. Uh, she's uh, with the, the Community Alliance for Nonprofits. Uh, so, Brunelda, did you want to respond to what Sarah shared with us? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, I I think that I just want just adding to that as you mentioned in your intro and going off of what Sarah said. Um, many people going into the nonprofit sector. They go into it because they find it fulfilling and noble work. They really care about their communities and their clients. Um, but those that are in the pipeline right now to go into that work are really concerned. Um, in another life outside of the Alliance, I also teach MSWs looking to get into the nonprofit sector. And um, they hear what's happening right now and they're questioning what they're going to do. I hear the stress in my students' voices as they're telling me that they are leaving school with debt, they have families to care for or are looking to start their own families, and they need to be able to be paid an adequate wage to do that and do the work that they love so much. So not only do we need to address the issue to prevent burnout of current staff, but we need to address it to attract more staff into the workforce to meet that increase in the demand that we're seeing. Uh, Janet shared with us on Facebook, she is a, a MSW student ready to graduate this May, and she wants to encourage service providers and those affected by this crisis to reach out to legislators, not only asking for budget increases, but loan forgiveness. Janet writes, loan forgiveness can mean the difference between someone being able to take a job with a nonprofit versus private sector. I know this is not an immediate solution, but it can certainly help moving forward as burnout continues to be on the rise. And so I wanted to hear from Sherry Albert, um, and because we heard Sarah talk about, you know, the perks, uh, but maybe thinking about ways uh, to help staff that you currently have, uh, even though you're, you know, you are restricted in, in how much you can pay based on your state contracts. Well, we've, you know, we certainly offer a, a full benefit package, uh, which is, you know, very much worth probably about 28% on top of their base salary. Um, that includes a, a choice of health plans and dental and vacation and uh, floating holidays. We have tuition reimbursement. We do merit increases and the list goes on. And to Sarah's point, I mean, we've, there, there is a loan forgiveness program for working in nonprofits, but it really takes about 10 years to be realized. So you find the, the process very cumbersome. So I do think that we have been encouraging legislators to consider a simplified process that, uh, that has a, uh, a shorter turnaround so that the benefit is, is seen sooner because it is true. We have, we have, some staff, um, you know, particularly our clinical staff 
who have to pay literally, I've heard, I have one staff member paying $1,700 a month in loan payments. And when you're not earning the money on the other side, once you're in the field, um, that means you're going to end up paying that loan and you're going to be 75 when you pay it off. It's, it is too much. It does need to be addressed. We do need that addressed um, for the human service field in general, because the pay does not equate to what the cost of the education to get there does. Um, so that's, and, and I also really, you know, resonated with um, one of the caller's comments too, just about how hardworking these people are that are in nonprofits. It's incredible. You know, I had an employee who's 60, she was, she was a, an assistant program director and she had earned her way up to that position and her 16 year old son came to her literally crying and saying, mom, we don't see you anymore. And it was because of the number of shifts she was covering. And she, she left scared to death, not knowing what her next move is going to be, but knowing that her family needed to be the most important thing. It's just heart-wrenching what we're putting people through. Okay. Sherry Albert, again, is Chief Operating Officer with Community Solutions, Inc., based in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Uh, there's a, a virtual open house that your organization's having. We're going to tweet that out and also put it on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Sherry, we thank you for talking to us today about this important issue. Thank you so much. And Sarah, thank you for calling in and good luck to you for sharing uh, your perspective on why you needed to leave uh, your nonprofit job. After the break, we're going to talk to an author who's written books about how nonprofits can thrive despite all of these challenges. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about Connecticut nonprofits that are struggling to retain and recruit workers. My next guest has written books about the nonprofit world. The stresses and challenges felt by nonprofit workers are not new, but author Beth Cantor writes about strategies that can help nonprofits thrive. Beth Cantor, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me here. You're co-author of The Happy Healthy Nonprofit, also The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered in an Automated World. You've been able to hear from our guests and our callers, also social media comments. So um, what what strikes you about this conversation and, and what well, we need to be focusing on moving forward? Um, it reinforces my sadness about the situation. And um, Sherry and, and Bernilda have really... Uh, described the, the root cause of the problem really well, sort of the uh, toxic combination of um, limited funding, increased demand. It really has supersized nonprofit burnout. But sadly, it's not just Connecticut. It's in many, it's all over. Um, uh, you know, I, I do lots of training and speaking, and this is what I'm hearing as well. And I think we really need to address the root causes of, you know, a living wage, uh, realistic workloads, hours, benefits that have been described like child Childcare, education, loan reimbursement. Um, but also, you know, once we've addressed that, we also really have to uh, rehumanize our, our, our workplaces and provide that flexibility. And um, if we step back and just like define burnout, um, burnout, and I use this is the WHO definition. And before the before it had reached a, a crisis point, I would read the definition, which is burnout is a state of emotional, mental, 
physical exhaustion that occurs when we feel overwhelmed by too many demands, too few resources, and too little recovery time. And every time I would share that definition with someone who worked at a nonprofit pre-pandemic, pre-crisis level, they said, oh, that's like working at my nonprofit. Um, and I, I think the thing for us to understand once we've solved this root issue um, is that, uh, you know, who designated burnout as a occupational issue? It's not a, you know, an individual problem. It's not uh, a sign of weakness from, um, you know, our staff. It, it's, it's the workplace conditions. And Beth, um, can you talk about more about the, when you say workplace conditions, the work culture that you find in nonprofits and also the sense of, I had mentioned at the top of the show, this belief that, you know, nonprofit workers, they do noble work. And so that should be enough. But when we think about the benefits, the pay, that's also important. It, it, it is, it is. But also I think, uh, and I've been working in this sector for over 35 years and I got into it. All of us have this passion for what we do. We want to serve our communities. We want to serve um, our clients. And, um, and often we put that before ourselves because we feel that's being selfish or we can't do that. And, um, and I'm constantly having to remind people that if you want to do a better quality of service and, and work and serve um, the people you serve better, you need to take care of yourself first. And so, you know, the conditions are around, you know, unmanageable workloads and unreasonable time pressures. And that comes, again, um, from the root cause that's been described. But once that's been solved, um, you know, there's that um, turnover rate that Sherry described, that constant training. Um, there's many manual lack of automated systems, which creates a lot of grunt work <laughs> that, that keeps us, you know, from getting to that direct uh, delivery. Um, there's other, in terms of culture, there's, you know, lack of role clarity and autonomy, the way uh, that we support one another at work, particularly managerial communication and support, and then um, people just being um, treated unfairly. Um, well, and this has been described as toxic workplaces. Mm -hmm. We heard from a couple of uh, listeners on social media and also a call earlier talking about the pay that leaders get versus what uh, their workers are getting paid. Uh, Maybeth tweeting for her particular situation, the salaries of nonprofit organization entry and medium level versus leadership staff is inequitable. We have CEOs making six figures plus and most often don't even live in the community uh, in that they serve while others beneath them can barely meet their mortgage payments. So it's hard to recruit new folks into the uh, these jobs when salaries are not equitable and then we we'll then factor in inflation. Uh, so let's talk about that, Beth. What's your response? Uh, my response to that is, you know, I, I I agree with Bernalda saying that, you know, that that won't solve the total crisis problem. But let's say once that's solved, okay, um, I've, I'm on a board of an organization called N10, which works with nonprofits and technology. And the CEO there uh, made a commitment not to have a, a, a salary increase because there was such a gap between her salary and others on staff, and uh, her salary. Uh, stayed the same. So, so more money could be re rejected and more equity to close that, that gap. Um, I wish more leaders would do that. Right. Cause that could help morale. It's it certainly a morale is an important piece of um, a component that can lead to a healthy, resilient, a culture of well-being in the workplace. I mean, um, 
there's all these basic things that we've been talking about, but then there are, you know, feelings, <laughs> friendship, um, and, and that fulfillment that we want from work. When we think about the workforce challenges, are you worried being in this nonprofit space for as long as you have, Beth, when we think about the future, attracting new employees, thinking about generational changes, or millennials, Gen Y, you know, are they going to want these types of jobs when they see the churn, less pay, the burnout? I've been worried about it for many, many, many years. And, uh, you know, 15 years ago, I, I had the idea to write that book. Um, I work in uh, nonprofits and tech at the intersection of emerging tech, but I was seeing this burnout and I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to bring the discussion you know, out there. And I was told it was a taboo topic. We don't talk about that. And even once I published the book back in 2015, they said, can you just talk about the solutions? Don't talk about burnout. We don't want to talk about that. Um, now, um, with the pandemic, it's raised the consciousness about the importance of, a, um, of encouraging employees to have work-life balance and a, a resilient work-life culture after we've solved this, this crisis that we're in. We've heard a lot from Brunelda and others about how within our state, lawmakers need to step up and no longer flat fund and to continue to support uh, these agencies that frankly save the state money because it's not state employees doing the work. They're being contracted to do this work. And so can you talk about, are you seeing other states responding in any way to this nonprofit crisis that is certainly beyond our border? Um, um Absolutely. I think, yes, there has to be um, this advocacy um, for, for state government money, of course. And, um, and especially when I hear that, you know, there's a surplus and there's a rainy day fund. I mean, what other better way to invest it than in community-based uh, nonprofits and the work and the important work they're delivering to people. I also think there's a role for the private sector. And when I heard that, um, you know, people doing the important work that you know, at Sherry's nonprofit, and they're getting paid less than someone who works at Target or Walmart. <laughs> and, and they've had to, you know, and also saddled with loans. I, I think we also, maybe corporations and their corporate social responsibility programs, maybe they need to also be um, funding uh, general operating as salaries or, um, you know, not looking at it as something that we don't fund, you know, um, because it's essential. We've just got uh, under two minutes. Uh, Beth Cantor, again, co-author of The Happy Healthy Nonprofit. We put a, a lot of emphasis on the public funding that's needed. But when we think about how nonprofits rely on donors, uh, what can you tell us about that relationship? I mean, that's another thing that also gets lost, too, with when we're in uh, crisis mode. Um, and, and we've become very transactional um, in our work because of the time pressures. And that also happens with donors. And we're treating them more like ATM machines instead of really building relationships. And I think also that... Um, you know, I mentioned automated systems, smart tech. Um, that's the book I just wrote. Um, uh, there's a lot of challenges in organizations with having having these types of systems that will kill off a lot of this grunt work, which frees up a lot of time that can be reinvested back with serving clients or building those relationships with donors. Brunelda uh, Farai is still here with us. Brunelda, just a minute left. But what did you want? How did you want to respond to that donor question as well? Sure, no problem. So what I, I think that donors have a really important role to play, um, but it is 
the obligation of the state to fully fund and pay for the services that they are contracting for. Um, the role that donors play is completely different than the state. And so asking them to step up and fill the gap that the state itself is supposed to be filling and contracting for, I think is a little unfair. Um, and I, it, so I'll, I'll sort of leave it at that. Um, and I did want to sort of end with just a shout out to all of the current nonprofit staff that are out there that are working in these jobs right now. So this past um, couple of weeks, the Appropriations Committee and the General Assembly held public hearings on the state budget for health and human services. And those staff showed up. They were so impressive. We had more than 300 people come and testify about the importance of supporting nonprofits and nonprofit staff in the legislature. And I am just so grateful to them for taking the time to make their voices heard um, and advocating for themselves. I, I, I really hope that legislators and the administration can work together to support them through this crisis. And we'll leave it there. Brunelda Ferrai, Vice President of Programs and Operations at the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Also here with us, Beth Cantor, co-author of The Happy Healthy Nonprofit and The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered in an Automated World. Beth, we appreciate your perspective as well. Thank you so much. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Special thanks to Gina Matruda, who was our tech producer today, and Katie Pellico on the phone. We hope you have a great weekend.